Um, my name is Peter Florence. I'm a patron of Ledbury Poetry. Uh, welcome to everyone in the room. Welcome to everyone on Zoom. Welcome to Ledbury. This is number seven of our Dead Poet Society this year. The pretext, I guess, is that it is the 400th anniversary of the greatest book ever published in English literature, in which the sonnets we're about to talk about do not appear. Um, we don't need an, an any pretext to talk about Shakespeare's sonnets, but that we are doing so with Emma Smith and Don Patterson is a real honour and a pleasure. Welcome to you both and thank you, thank you. for coming. Um, we are going to talk for about 45 minutes and take questions from you and from you online. Do please put them in the chat. And we are going to read some of our favourite um, sonnets. And before we do so, we're going to set up the context, uh, not only of sonnet form as it came to England and then to William Shakespeare, but also to the idea of publication and what that might mean, how they were published, who they were published by and for. And in order to start that off, Emma, can I ask you to set us up with uh, Petrarch, Thomas Wyatt, where the sonnet was in Tudor England? Gosh, this feels like an exam question, doesn't it? <laughs> um, discuss. discuss. <clears throat> Yeah, so sonnets come into 16th century English, like many literary fashions, from the Italian. Uh, and they come most immediately from Petrarch. Petrarch had written uh, a series of sonnets uh, to his uh, beloved. Um, and we don't know whether uh, Laura actually existed. Um, uh, but in some ways, it doesn't really matter whether she did, because she inaugurated a whole... Um, uh, pantheon of slightly non-existent women um, uh, for whom the poet feels extraordinary uh, desire and who doesn't hardly knows that he he exists. Uh, so Petrarch sets up the sonnet as a as a as a form as a fourteen line uh, poem, uh, but he also sets up the, the major thematic of the sonnet, which is the impossibility of fulfilling fulfilling your desire. So uh, as soon as you start to write a sonnet, if you're writing a sonnet as a love poem, don't, because it immediately means you'll never get, you'll, you'll never get there. Write a different kind of poem uh, if you want a happy, a happy ending. Um, and uh, Petrarch gets translated um, immediately uh, in the mid-16th century in um, the kind of poetry that circulates, Peter mentioned uh, the question of print, uh, he's first translated in the kind of poetry that circulates in courtly circles in manuscript rather than that gets printed. Uh, and it's Tottles, wonderfully called Tottles Miscellany, uh, an anthology of poetry um, explicitly set out to um, elevate English as a language for poetry and to make available high-end poetry, which had previously been available only in courtly circles. Uh, and we get uh, uh, Thomas uh, Wyatt in particular uh, as a, uh, the, 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 the predominant translator and more than translator, sort of Englishifier um, in, in a more profound cultural sense. I think Shakespeare gets his sonnets. This is, Peter will be sorry he asked me this because four hours later I should be saying, by 1570, <laughs> matters had changed a little. No, 
So I think Shakespeare gets his sonnets more directly, probably, uh, from Philip Sidney, whose sonnets get published uh, in 1591 and set off an enormous craze for sonnets. So there are literally hundreds of sonnet publications during the 1590s. It's what everybody wants to try and do. And I think that's where uh, Shakespeare gets them. And he, it's he who popularizes, although he doesn't completely invent, uh, the different um, arrangement of the sonnet, rather than the octave and the sestet, eight lines and six lines, which is what Petrarch had had, um, the Shakespearean sonnet by, by the time of Shakespeare, not uh, the, the one that we most associate with him, is three quatrains, so three times four, and then a couplet. John, thank you. Can I ask you, it's pretty easy to make stuff rhyme in Italian. And... <laughs> <laughs> Do it now. <laughs> but it's a different challenge, isn't it, in English? Uh, it, well, it certainly is. It's actually it's regarded, you know, as a mark of uh, uh, virtuosity in Italian poetry to avoid rhyme. You know, uh, that's how easy it is because you just go there at the end, you know, and, and everything suddenly rhymes. Um, and that's the reason, you know, as Emma mentioned, for the change in form. Um, so this new kind of Jimmy, Jimmy Hendrix. Um, this new kind of uh, uh, the English. Uh, sorry, I'm getting a lot of feedback. So I can, sorry, I'll start again. Um, uh, this this new kind of uh, um, sonnet. It's not, this kind of sonnet, better adapted to to, to the, the grain of the uh, English language, comes in form. Um, uh, which, uh, and the Petrarchan form, uh, I don't know if anyone was at the Elizabeth Barrett Browning uh, event last night, but that was the one that she used, and it only has four rhymes. It's extremely difficult to find those rhymes and make them uh, fall easily in English. You have to do a lot of preparation in the syntax. You have to be a kind of genius. So it was decided that we should make the game a lot easier to play. Uh, and Shakespeare runs with this idea, sort of, you know, so, so you divide the poem into uh, three quatrains which have their own pair of rhymes and a couplet at the end. So as a result of the paucity of rhymes in English, you end up with a form that's much more suited, or rather easier to write in English, but it does leave you with a problem, <laughs> which is the couplet. Uh, and knowing what to do with the couplet is the great tragedy of the, of the, of the, of the sonnet's history. Um, uh, there, are, there are a lot of sonnets that, uh, that really finish at line 12 of really should. Uh, and, uh, and even some of Shakespeare's. And you can always tell them because what you get, um, uh, and I don't know if this is you know, particularly suited to the English turn of mind, but you often get two lines of largely redundant and rather pretentious summary at the end, you know. So, um, uh, uh, thus, and you can always tell the really good sonnets in Shakespeare because those are the ones where he's arguing out the form to the very end. So the, so the last couplet will start with and or but. You know, are yet. So there's some qualification or argumentation still going on. But the interesting thing about the sonnet, I'd say, from a kind of poet's perspective, is it still sticks to the octave and sestet. So you still get this weird thing that happens round about the point of the golden section between lines eight and nine, where there's a shift in the argument or some kind of denouement or, 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 or turn or, 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 or new development. Um, and you find that Italian volta, that, that turn, uh, just as often in a Shakespeare sonnet as you do in Petrarch. So that weird 
essence of the sonnet is still intact in Shakespeare. It's still there. It just looks different, and it's, it's easier to write. But he nails it to the point it's effectively a motor skill. Unlike Barnett Browning, whose sonnets were exquisitely composed, you can tell Shakespeare is, 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 is uh, really an improviser within the form. I suspect some of these you know, were slowly composed, but some of them were written very quickly, much in the way that Bach, the fugue, uh, Shakespeare could improvise a great sonnet. Can I, so can I do two things? So firstly, Andy, is there anything you can do about John's headset? Secondly, whilst you're thinking about that, um, Emma, can I just run you through chronology? The, the publication comes in 1609. Thomas Thorpe publishes 154 sonnets. But we know that Shakespeare by now has already got rich and become very famous with the publication of The Rape of Lucrece and Venus and Adonis, which are huge bestsellers, making more money than the plays at the time. Um, we know that even in sort of Romeo and Juliet, where he inserts sonnets all over the place, shared sonnets, Lady Capulet's very strange hymn to why she should shag Paris. He's, he's very familiar with playing with a sonnet idea. Do we assume, and is there textual sort of credibility to say that he's been writing these sonnets all the way through and that the publication, and we'll come to how strange publication is, but he's the sort of summation of a long, decades-long engagement with the form. I think that's true. I think most people now feel Shakespeare's sonnets have been, uh, maybe only retrospectively, take on the character of a collection and a more uh, a selection of poems being written over a long period. So there's one um, uh, sonnet which puns on, seems to pun on the on the word Hathaway. Uh, and uh, lots of scholars have been very um, inclined to feel that that's an early sonnet, perhaps uh, from relatively early in, in Shakespeare's writing life. Uh, and, you know, there it is in among works which are much, much later. So, yeah, I think probably the sonnet form, uh, it's interesting hearing Don think about Shakespeare riffing. I sometimes think the sonnet form had established itself in Elizabethan consciousness such that it was like being able to strum a few guitar chords without really being able to play the guitar. Uh, and I think lots and lots of poets could do that. Shakespeare can do more than that. But certainly the sonnet form is a very, very available sort of low bar to entry kind of um, uh, poetic form uh, in, in this period. <laughs> Hence your subconscious allusion to Jimi Hendrix. This is, this is Shakespeare's version. Well, it, is, yes, it, it, it really is a 12 bar. very close to a 12 bar blues, actually, in its emotional shape, you know. So it's like it's almost a kind of folk form at that point. And most people could thump their way through a 12 bar blues, but not everyone's Albert King, you know. So, yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, <clears throat> there is there's a problem with this. We know, you know, the first folio published in 1623, he's been dead seven years. He had no involvement in that publication. 1609, this guy publishes these poems. He surely must have had Shakespeare's approval, editorial input, at least the selection must have been involved, surely. No one would publish it without his permission, would they? Do you want to answer that, Donald? Oh, I, could, I could say something briefly, which is that, you know, I, I guess there's no proof one way or the other. Um, but just having worked in publishing and looking at the care of the arrangement of the order of the sonnets.
the way in which very often the content of the sonnet will riff on the number in the sequence strikes me as, as, as a level of uh, editorial interest that would be without precedent, precedent before or after. I mean, basically, sure, editors you know, and publishers take an interest, but no one takes that much interest except the author. So um, I'm, I'm pretty sure he, he must have had a hand in ordering it. And there are some very strange artifacts, you know, like the inclusion of the, of the Juvenilia poem, you know, which is, you know, and if, if, if anything was ever making up the numbers, um, it was that, I mean, it's just, it's so clearly the work of an 18 year old or whatever, you know, it's just like, it's not even in the right meter. It's the only one that's not an iambic pentameter. And you're thinking, who, who else but the author would have thought, well, I'm one short, you know, it's just, it's, um, I, have to, I have to get up to, 154. <laughs> we were just re <laughs> reminding ourselves of the numbers off stage. Okay, let me mm. ask a, a, a sort of supplementary question to that. The plays are performed. They are public artifacts. They're collaborative. They are completely shared from inception, from the moment they're commissioned or, or first performed. Some of these sonnets, if we're right, have been written and circulated, who is it, Francis Mears, who says they are sugared sonnets that have been shared among friends. They've been passed round, rather like the sort of courtly maybe exchange that you have. What is, what is the, the, the essentially private, intimate nature of this form? How does that relate to the very public nature of the plays? And how does that maybe change the way in which he, he writes them? Uh, well, uh, there are lots of, that's a really great set of questions. I think the first thing is that it's not completely clear that sonnets are absolutely private and intimate. They may look as if they are, but they are also uh, a game that, you know, I mentioned Philip Sidney's uh, sonnets, Astrophil and Stella. The game with Astrophil and Stella was to work out who was who and what kind of gossip was being um, uh, sort of shadowed or, or invented through this form. So it... Uh, it purports to be the private effusions of a lover to the beloved, but really uh, it's with an eye most definitely to an audience for that. And um, Thomas Nash, who writes the preface to Sidney's sonnets, talks about uh, the, them taking place on a paper stage so that they are a kind of miniature uh, drama uh, in, in, in themselves. But it is interesting, since you're pressing on that question, to think about Shakespeare in 1609, the year that the sonnets uh, come out, what we find about Shakespeare's plays is that they, almost all the plays from the first half of his career get printed, and almost none of them from the second half do. So for some reason, Shakespeare's plays in print have dropped out of the, the, the kind of publisher's lists or something. Um, we know, as Peter said, that he has this huge success as a young man, as a young writer with Lucrece and Venus and Adonis. You know, when we had through lockdown, you know, did Shakespeare write King Lear, you know, during a lockdown? Well, you know, probably not, but he definitely did write uh, Lucrece and Venus and Adonis. They are super successful narrative poems, and he writes those before he's established himself at all as a playwright, but he doesn't seem to stick with that genre, even though he's been very successful with it. So, you know, for the mo block of his career, plays seem to be where he is. Uh, and then maybe towards the end of his career, 
he starts, you know, the plays start to be more collaborative. Maybe there's a different sense of what, the, what poetry what poetry can do. So my sense is, Don's right, we don't know one way or the other, but it would be unlikely, I think, that Shakespeare had nothing to do with the publication. Is one of the reasons that we read these poems partly as autobiography, A, there's the simple question of the I voice of the poet, but B, the intimacy does feel as if it's a personal expression in the way that none of the other work does. Is that correct? It seems more of a contortion to try and to try than read them as a purely sort of dramatic exercise than it does a, a rather autobiographical one, yeah. Um, I, and I think that's what you have to be ruled by, is Occam's razor at this point. What does it make most sense to think? Um, uh, you know, I, I, and for me, and, and, uh, and it's purely in terms of the intimacy of the delivery, it's very hard not to feel sort of a, you know, a flesh and blood individual behind this rather than someone who's ventriloquizing on behalf of some creative persona. Yeah. Is there a tradition that the sonnet form is confessional? There's certainly a later tradition. So Wordsworth says, you know, this is the key with which Shakespeare unlocks his heart. And of course, we've always been on the lookout for doc documents of Shakespeare's biography. Uh, and the sonnets have been, um, at different points in our search for Shakespeare's biography, deliciously um, uh, on, on point and sometimes very much against. So part of the critical attempt to suggest these are literary exercises rather than felt or um, uh, sort of experienced uh, emotions was the fear that maybe some of these sonnets were by a man addressed to a man and what would this say about the national poet and it was much easier to say well you no know, this isn't about Shakespeare himself so some of the retreat from biography has been rather sort of reactionary I think about what it might have said uh, about the poet if I mean we'll come on to this I'm sure but if if these are biographical or autobiographical the Shakespeare who emerges from them is, is not the nicest, I think. Um, and um, that, that, what, why would we expect him to be? But yet I think we probably, uh, at some level, have all inherited a sense that Shakespeare must have been a nice person because the plays are somehow liberal and open-minded and generous. Uh, that's not the, that's not the per persona who comes through these poems, I think. Can I, can I ask you, before we get to, to the, the poems themselves, if you're right in that Shakespeare had to have had a guiding editorial intelligence of his own applied to these sonnets, why does he include sonnets 1 to 17 in this collection, which without them would be a considerably more impressive piece of work? Uh, it's a question. He may have simply thought more highly of them than we do. Oh, I, mean, there's a, I mean, that may be the simplest explanation. There's other things going on, which is that, you know, the, the, the sonnet craze was incredibly competitive, you know, and when, to some extent, and testosterone fueled in as much as the length of your sequence was at a premium. So, um, so he was, I, I think actually Sydney, round about 108, gets tipped a little wink as, uh, as Shakespeare passes his number, you know, to write an even longer sequence. You know, and by the end, you know, sort of, you know, the sonnet 145 being a case in, case in point, he's kind of slapping in any old rubbish. Um, and then there's the mystery of the two sonnets at the end that I happen to think much better of, you know, the two additional uh, sonnets based on the, uh, uh, the Greek epigram at the end. 
uh, are regarded as again sort of making up, making up numbers. Um, but he may simply have thought more of them. It's true to say, though, it's very difficult to defend those. Um, uh, those initial poems because they are substandard but they do present a kind of interesting meta mystery about why the hell he wrote the same poem 17 times by way of preparation and it's an incredible launch pad for Sonnet 18 which halfway through writing the same poem again in which he says you know to, uh, to, to, to the young man who's addressed you know sort of, if you do not reproduce and find a wife your beauty will not be stamped again in the world and this is a terrible loss halfway through this he goes nah I'm not going to say that same thing again. And, and you get a sudden declaration of love halfway through the poem. Um, but, so it, it may have been 17 poems of throat clearing. There are theories that the poem was a commission uh, by William Herbert's mother, um, who was a big Shakespeare fan, uh, you know, and, uh, and that this would somehow convince him. Uh, you know, to uh, go forth and multiply, um, but, but they do present a conundrum. I'm not, you know, sort of, we'll never know. You may have just thought they were good. Poets do that, you know. Okay, you know. We're, if, we're, if we're saying warm up to, to number 18, will you read us number 18 and then talk us through it? Uh, sure, yeah. Um, I know 18 is a cliche, but it, it, it's full of pitfalls for the, well, pitfalls for actors, I should say. Um, because they often, I was, I was listening to like, uh, you know, some actors read this on YouTube earlier, and there are some beautiful performances, but some people do say, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Shall I? Oh, I think I will, you know? Um, uh, yeah, more lovely and more temperate, you know, in the self, for God's sake, you know? Um, so he's definitely going to, he's every intention of comparing them to a summer's day. This is what we need, so let's be clear on that. Okay? Uh, and he's going to find the summer's day wanting. It's a fairly simple structure. <laughs> but, but bear in mind that halfway through this poem, at the turn, he would usually go, so take a wife and have lots of children and that'll stamp your beauty through the world and, you know, and, um, and it'll uh, mean that your noble house, you know, is propagated. And he doesn't do that. And he goes, no, I'm going to... Um, shall I compare thee to a summer's day? Thou art more lovely and more temperate. Rough winds do shake the darling buds of May, and summer's lease hath all too short a date. Sometime too hot the eye of heaven shines, and often is his gold complexion dimmed, and every fair from fair sometime declines by chance or nature's changing course untrimmed. But thy eternal summer shall not fade, nor lose possession of that fair thou owest, nor shall death brag thou wanderest in a shade when in eternal lines to time thou growest. So long as men can breathe or eyes can see, so long lives this, and this gives life to thee. Sorry for that actively dramatic gesture, there. <laughs> but you have to know he's speaking about the poem that he's writing, you know, uh, which is an astonishing turn after uh, 17 poems. Maybe just going back to your thing about Bach and the sort of the, the well-tempered sonnet, could, could you regard sort of 1 to 17 as the aria from which he's now going to start improvising and jazzing? Are these the variations? Uh, I think it's, it's less the aria or the theme so much as 
work in a kind of form into the, the fluency of a motor skill so that he no longer has to think about it. So that the form itself effectively becomes invisible in terms of his practice and he can write inside it rather than have to actually think about it. So, you know, and again, it's much in the same way that backward, backward improvise a fugue. Um, he, he's now inside the form as you are inside the changes of a jazz standard that you know inside out. You can just improvise within it. Um, so I think, I think he's liberated himself from the form at this point. And at, that, at this point, he's free to uh, address his, his, his true subject, I think. So. You talked, Emma, a second ago about the gender of the object of his affection. That poem isn't particularly... If you take that poem without the first 17, it isn't particularly gendered. But we're moving into a sequence where there are male pronouns. It is very clear that the poet is in love with a young man and that their affair develops. Um, how is it that in the history of, of the last 400 odd years, this hasn't become, until really maybe Oscar Wilde's trial, a kind of rallying point for some form of queer or gay political or even just emotional engagement and, and, and commitment? I suppose there are possibly two, two reasons for that. In the, we've talked about the sonnets coming out in 1609. Peter pointed out they don't get gathered up with the first collected edition of Shakespeare's plays. So they're, they're off on their own, really. They're not reprinted very quickly. That may suggest they weren't a particular hit at the time. And when they get reprinted in 1640, by the publisher John Benson. Benson does quite a lot of work to straighten out the sonnets. Uh, he gives the sonnets titles to indicate um, what narrative they're, they're saying, and he changes pronouns to make, uh, make it more comfortable for readers to think this is a standard heterosexual dynamic. Uh, he literally dynamic. straightens them out. He literally straightens them out, or, attempt, or attempts to. And Benson's... Um, uh, you know, there are, there are lots of aspects of Shakespeare's transmission through time which have, where it's been actually a, an adaptation of Shakespeare that's carried uh, the torch, as it were. The same is true of King Lear, where it's Nahum Tate's happy ending version, which keeps going for about 120 years, and nobody's really interested in Shakespeare's original version. And I think the same may have happened about the sonnets. They, they were transmitted via Benson's edition rather than the 1609 edition. But then you're right, I mean, so, a lot... I think, I think cultural histories of sexuality would say a lot changes around the Wild trial, and it's a great thing to, to bring up. I mean, Wilde writes about the sonnets and about the mystery of, of, of Master W.H., the dedicatee, uh, whose, whose identity has never been firmly uh, achieved. But we also know that at the trial of Oscar Wilde, uh, he has sent sonnets as love letters to... Um, uh, Bosey, and you know that's that, that's part of what comes up. You know, what did he mean by doing this uh, in in the trial? So they become very explicitly queer at that point, and I think that may be the moment where some certain critics respond by saying, "But they're not they're not biographical." Um, it's that moment that that, that uh, prompts the retreat from from biography there. But they have become an amazing rallying call since. You know. Yeah. Derek Jarman's film Blue, I might think of, or you know, all kinds of different uh, uh, other um, literary and artistic um, 
things inspired by the sonnets have become a really important part of 20th century queer culture. Can we just talk about time for a second? Because the other sort of greatest hit poem, the one that gets read at weddings, funerals, uh, just ad, I was about to say ad nauseum. No, not ad, ad, ad astra. Um, whilst they are clearly about love and the passage of time, and also about writing, the overwhelming feeling, listening to you read Shall I Convey Thee to a Summer's Day, and looking forward to you reading Let Me Not to the Marriage of True Minds, is that actually there is primarily a sense of the poet's own mortality written into these. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering whether one of the reasons the question of who WH might be, whether it's Henry Risley or Herbert or whoever it might be, and indeed if it's like Laura, you could have made up, but it's clearly homosexual passionate love, is that we don't learn an awful lot about the young man apart from that he's incredibly hot. Mm. I mean, there's no action or emotion, or, or there's not a lot coming back. It's a sort of one-way traffic, isn't it? Yeah, we learn that he may look a bit like his mum and he might have a wispy beard, but mostly <laughs> there's no real sort of strong physical description of, no. uh, you know, of the mean, young man there. But, but no behavioural description. But, yeah, but, but, but as you say, that's not really what the poem's about. The poem is, is less about the, the object of desire than desire itself. It's about the feeling of being in love. Uh, it's about the narrative of love and the narrative of, of, of infatuation. Um, you know, and, and which is a pretty self-involved sort of thing, you know. So, so yeah, the young man weirdly is the excuse, but not so much the focus. Um. Emma, will you read us um, one one six? Yeah, Peter said at the beginning we were going to read our favourites. Actually, he picked this, not me. I just was. <laughs> I'm very happy to read it then. Let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments. Love is not love which alters when it alteration finds, or bends with the remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark that looks on tempests and is never shaken. It is the star to every wandering bark, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Love's not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love alters not with his brief hours and weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ, nor no man ever loved. It's, it's, the reason I wanted you to read it partly was, A, because it's just great, but B, there's a point that Don makes in, in this book, which I cannot recommend to you highly enough, um, specifically about that, that one line, but you obviously make it more applicable, more generally, about that line, the star to every wandering bark. Could you just talk us through the point you make so eloquently in this book about what Shakespeare's capacity there is and how brilliantly concise and powerful that line uh, it's, a, it's a particularly beautiful line, you know, and if, it was a, you know, and if we were to do the beauties of Sonnet 116, uh, uh, I would point first to that line. And I'll just point out one effect, you know, which is something he does all the time, which is he'll take two words that are opposite in meaning 
and he'll pull them together to create a kind of a free song but making them sound the same. This is a standard Shakespearean trick and it's astonishingly effective but it's really hard to do. Um, and, and here the bark wanders and the star is fixed and, and that's, what we're, that's a really strong assonance, really strong repeated vowel that you can hear pop out of that line, you know, and, and you're meant to feel both the similarity between their sounds but their, but their contrast. Um, the star is fixed um, uh, and the bark, of course, is wandering. And he picks up this wandering theme elsewhere in the poem when he says error, and you'll be conscious of a, a error coming from Arari to wander. Uh, it's, a, it's a, actually, it's also a funny note, the word wandering here. Uh, uh, you know, when you think about the use to which this, this, this poem is regularly put in marriage vows, because if only people would read the poem on either side, I, th I think they'd be less keen. <laughs> it's a poem that kind of works between uh, two gay men, if one of them's, you know, very far away. And, you know, but it's also a poem about the fact that both stray a lot, um, uh, particularly the speaker, you know. Uh, uh, and it's about the way in which, which love is above all that, it's above our human wandering. Um, and these things are kind of, uh, you know, this is not the sort of confession that you want to make, I would suggest, in the altar. Um, that's all. It's, it's, a, it's a non choice of poem, shall we say, when you read it in context. Um, and it brings out, doesn't it, whether these are individual poems that you can enjoy or stepping stones in a larger narrative. Um, and they're two completely different ways, I think, of, of, of understanding or enjoying these, these poems, do you read them through like a narrative where things, emotions are changing and uh, each one is in relation to what's been and what's going to come? Or can you pick these out uh, for your, uh, yeah, your wedding ceremony? Yeah, and I think there's no right yeah. way or wrong way. Yeah. And I think, you know, it's a tribute to the, the integrity of so many of the individual sonnets that you can't do that, of course. Yeah, because we and know the early readers did that right from the beginning. They yeah, they picked and, picked and, they picked and, picked and choose. The the you know, and then you get to contextualise them in terms of your own life and what you project <laughs> to them. And, what, what, you know, and that really does pay a compliment, you know. Mm. But it's, uh, you, you're just as well not to read the other yeah, sonnets if you're choosing that. Quite. Can I therefore ask you that if, if there is a coherence and you do want to put them in context, how do we read the fact that 18 to 127 are about the relationship with, I say this boy, it may not be a single person. And then we get a totally different character introduced with some extraordinarily uncomfortable misogyny and bitterness and what you can only read as really sort of twisted violence, actually. How do, how do those two sequences fit together, if at all? Or how should we understand them fitting together? Um, I, well, I mean, this is a crux, isn't it, Emma? It is a crux. <laughs> it's like, uh, it's interesting, though, because I think, you know, um, you, you know, we have to do a bit of pop psychologizing and we'll have to do it, we'll have to sort of, you know, try and figure out the timeline here, and there's enough to suggest in the young man's sonnets, for the fair youth sonnets, um, that this other affair was conducted simultaneously. Um, and, and it's some kind of hellish triangle. Um, so, so, th so that may solve it for us. Um, but it's true to say that this is when we really get into the messy. If you read this as autobiographical, then stuff gets messy. Uh, and you start to realise that Shakespeare is... Um, uh, is, is complicated, not always in a good way as an individual, 
Um, uh, but, you know, his, his sexuality is also extremely confused. Um, the poems are, are, you know, sort of, nonetheless, poems, people will cherry pick from the Dark Lady poems. Um, uh, you, know, uh, you know, my mistress' eyes are nothing like the sun. And I've had so many arguments with folks saying that he's paying no compliment throughout this entire poem. This is not a poem in praise of real, honest, earthy womanhood at all. It's a, I, I read it as a pretty nasty, um, you know, albeit maybe unconsciously misogynistic poem. Um, I, I, and I've got no idea what's going on with these poems. The most honest poem um, is, is the Waste of Shame poem, really, when he, when, he, when he talks about an ugly side of male sexuality and to do with, you know, post-coital disgust and all sorts of stuff. At least he's being, that has a merit of someone being honest. But someone trying to write something, you know, sort of in praise of a woman through, the, you know, through his own disgust, frankly, is an ugly sight. I have no idea what's going on there, though. But I suspect the timelines were, were coterminous, actually, in terms of the affairs. Emma, have, sorry to have landed that one on you. May, may I invite you <laughs> to read one you love? Oh, oh, I thought you were going to make me read the expensive show. <laughs> no, Spirit. I'm really not, actually. Uh, give, me, uh, what did, what okay. did, give me a moment. In which case, Don, do us 86. Yeah. Okay. Um, I can't do 86 with it very sort of, you know, very quickly doing the sort of, you know, the, the, the little bit of detective work that I'm really proud of here, but, which is totally wrong, I'm sure. But anyway, I'll read the poem in very quickly. Um, this is one of the rival uh, uh, the poet um, sonnets. Um, Shakespeare is obsessed with his rivals and it, again is largely forgotten about the beloved at this point. Um, is more concerned with other poets who write about him. Was it the proud fool's sale of his great verse, bound for the prize of all too precious you, that did my right thoughts in my brain enhance, making their tomb the womb wherein they grew? Was it his spirit by spirits taught to write above a mortal pitch that struck me dead? No, neither he nor his compeers by night giving a maid, my verse astonished. He, nor that affable, familiar ghost, which nightly gulls him with intelligence, as victors of my silence cannot boast. I was not sick of any fear from thence, but when your countenance filled up his line, then lacked I matter, that enfeebled mine. And, it, and it's a kind of poem that makes no sense until you try and figure out the identities of the characters involved. And with, we suspect that he was talking about George Chapman of Chapman's Homer fame, um, because Shakespeare will have been jealous of his, of his success, and he was also, uh, uh, he was also um, uh, had dedicated poems to Henry Risley, who we think may be a candidate for the... Uh, uh, for the youth. But more interestingly, um, uh, Chapman bragged of being visited by the ghosts of Homer, uh, who dictated, uh, 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 Homer dictates his brilliant translation to him, you know. And this will have infuriated Shakespeare, you know, because it's rubbish, principally. You know? <laughs> but the more interesting thing, I think, is this affable, familiar ghost, um, which presents a kind of a problem. But I think it's Marlowe. I'm certain it's Marlowe. Um, because at the same time, Chapman's also finishing off Marlowe's uh, 
poem Hero and Leander, and presumably making the identical boast that Marlowe's ghosts come into him. And uh, Marlowe told me to write this, you know. And Shakespeare was best buds with Marlowe. I mean, they collaborated. They were, they were intellectual equals. They saw, they saw each other in each other, you know, and this must have driven him crazy. So I think that's the affable familiar ghost here, which nightly gulls him, which nightly fools Chapman with false intelligence. Remember, Marlowe was an intelligencer. He was a spy uh, for Francis Walsingham. Um, and and he's, he's basically feeding Chapman duff lines of poetry. <laughs> this, so so this, is, this is my kind of vision you know, for what's going on here. So it's actually sort of, a, it's, about, it's, it's about very specific rivalry, you know, and wishing ill on your opponents. So, yeah. <laughs> Thank God he didn't have to deal with Peak Dunn, eh? Um, yeah. Emma. Uh, I was going to read 29, uh, so let's, let's try that. When in disgrace, with fortune and men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state, and trouble deaf heaven with my bootless cries, and look upon myself and curse my fate, wishing me like to one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy, contented least. Yet in these thoughts myself almost despising, haply I think on thee, and then my state, like to the lark at break of day arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered, such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with kings. That's the nice part of the sonnet. <laughs> Don, how did you read that? It is a nice bit, isn't it? It, it is a nice bit. This is a lovely bit. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Uh, I think they get, I mean, I think uh, Don's absolutely right. I think they get much less likeable, much less enjoyable as we, as we proceed. Um, this is a, if this is a drama, it's a, it's a tragedy. It's, a, it's, it's not a comedy. Um, it's not, that's not how it's moving. But it's odd that they have the, re the reputation as the kind of book that lovers should sit and read to each other, isn't it? I mean, if they, I mean, they could open it randomly and get really unlucky, maybe <laughs> fifty <laughs> times, and going, "This is really, you know, we've been missold this." Thank you both very much indeed. We have um, quarter of an hour for questions, which I suspect will come from all over. Uh, if you have a question in the room, do please put up your hand, and we'll bring you a microphone, which will amplify whatever you'd like to say, and also record it for posterity. Equally, if you're asking questions online, do please post them in the chat and we will ask them for you, voice them for you in the room. And if there are no questions, which is also absolutely fine, I'm going to ask, oh, of course, could we have the first one here, please? Um, well, you said earlier on this selection of the, the little points from, I can't remember the numbers now, but would you say that Sonnet 94 is just a political poem? The, the question, I think, just in case it wasn't already picked up, was is Sonnet 94 a pr primarily a political poem? Don, uh, what is Sonnet 94? I'll have to reacquaint myself with my prejudice, maybe. Um, <laughs> Oh, 
they that have power to hurt. That was the one uh, Pren wrote a book on, was it not? Mm -hmm. So I, I'd love to say, just go and read Jeremy Pren, because I've never said that in my life, but, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, I, I, I don't know. I'd like to hand it on to the experts. <laughs> I'm sorry, Emma. Do you want I, think, I think it's a really interesting question about whether the sonnet, a sonnet is political, because as we've already discussed, our instinct is to think that they're personal, they're intimate, they're about the emotional world. Uh, certainly, the part of the vogue for sonnets in the Elizabethan period and part of the way of um, uh, establishing a world in which a haughty, powerful woman won't take any notice of you was, surprise, surprise, you know, political. This, these were young men trying to make their way in Elizabeth's court. Elizabeth was very interested in using the languages of courtly love and, and sonneteering to uh, confirm her position as the adored and, you know, unreachable uh, mistress of, of, of all, all her courtiers. That was part of her um, politics of, uh, of rule. And so certainly part of the, uh, the, the spread of the sonnet or the popularity of the sonnet is about um, political pleas or, or pleas to, to, for, for advancement, which are not so much erotic as as you know, as political. So I think it's very interesting to see that uh, one way of seeing that sonnet and, and, and some others is as a carryover uh, from, from that period. By the time we get to James's court in 1609, we've got a very different use of sort of gender and sexuality as part of, of politics. And uh, uh, like Elizabeth, but with a different um, connotation, of course, James is also very fond of young men around him um, and who uh, de are devoted to him in ways which seem uh, to, to, to express a kind of an almost erotic devotion. So the sonnets, maybe these late sonnets, Shakespeare's sonnets are late in the boom, uh, certainly they're late to be printed. Maybe they pick up a different politics of, of the court as well as these more intimate things we've been talking about. Just, just more generally, and I, I don't want to ask you anything as banal as a, as a percentage, but how much of what's going on in the sonnets is just completely unreachable for us now because it would have been uh, utterly meaningful for people of the time, but we now read it, of course, with our 21st century sensibility, but we've, we've lost so much of the illusion, I presume. I'm not sure there was a key that would have unlocked it then. Um, as you were speaking, I was thinking about an Elizabethan man who interprets Shakespeare's Venus and Adonis in a highly tendentious, politicised way and thinks he has found the secret message. And um, in fact, it seems to be part of a, a sort of complete mental breakdown and he hasn't found the secret message and there probably wasn't a secret message. I, I wonder if this, there is, there is a, something which is intrinsic to the sonnets, to, to sonnets as a form, I think, which is about um, something un, unreachable, something beyond full comprehension. And that may be in the personal dynamics or it may be in the language. 
So I, I'm not sure. Do you, what do you think? I, I think there's two things. I think it's just the way that Shakespeare wrote. And these are dense and difficult sonnets, even mm. compared with his contemporaries. I mean, we should be clear on that. You know, it's just like his contemporaries I find much easier to read. Uh, and some of them really are impenetrable. It was also really experimental with the syntax. Um, so it's sometimes really hard to paraphrase what he's saying, uh, you, know, but, uh, you know, by taking it out of its kind of poetic context. Um, and that, unfortunately, leaves an awful lot of room for kind of oracular speculation as to what he might have meant. Um, so they just are sort of difficult, you know, to, you know, to, to, to parse out sometimes. There's also the aspect which is, you know, sort of, um, th there are many puns which are now lost. Most of them are sexual, you know, but it's very hard to kind of, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, to, uh, to, to read them really without someone like Stephen Booth at your side who's going to explain, uh, you know, the, these, these various kind of sexual innuendos that come up literally every two lines. Uh, you know, I, and also some things are just less entertaining. I mean, look, those two poems which point on Will, um, and Will means everything from Willie to, uh, you know, Fanny to God knows what else. You know, it's just like, and they're really kind of awful poems, but clearly were entertaining at a time when there was, there was no um, Netflix or anything <laughs> else. You know, like a new pun went viral like a meme in those days, you know, so, um, and he's clearly tickled with himself, uh, but, uh, but they are kind of um, amusing to read now. Um, We've got a question from the internet there. I'll be sneaky and ask the two questions that have just come up. The first is, who was WH? And the second question is, are there any more recent poets in your views who come anywhere near Shakespeare in sonnet writing ability? Okay, let's just, I think we've sort of done WH, but let, let's just cover the ground again. It, it can be either Herbert or it can be Henry Risley with a very simple cipher of the initials reversed, or it can be nobody at all, or it can be somebody we haven't yet we, Nobody knows. And I'm does gonna, it I'm matter? I'm going to go for both. Mm. Yeah. I think it may have been both. Either. Yeah, and then maybe saying the only begetter. Of these poems is a is a great joke because it's not an only. Yeah, <laughs> indeed. Yeah, yeah. yeah, great subterfuge. Yeah, this is for you uh, and him. Mm. But I'm sorry, what was the what second about question? poets writing sonnets now? Anyone greater than Shakespeare? When did Dunn write the Good Morrow? Was it like ten years after Shakespeare died? Longer. Mm. Yeah, yeah right uh, not, not as long, yeah. no, not as long as that, probably. I mean, they're circulating about the same time. Right. And that, I mean, I presume your answer is, when you say specifically, the, what's that great line you say, that the least of Shakespeare's poems is still way ahead of He's still else. got something, I, you know, I, I think no one else can reach. You know, there's still a level of, uh, you know, just simple virtuosity that, you know, that, you, that, that I'd find it uh, totally inimitable. But um, that wouldn't be quite true to say that I take the least of his sonnets over. I don't know why I said that. It was such a stupid thing to say. You know, I think of it. And I may delete it in future editions. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think, you know, it's, um, yeah, yeah, people have written. The first thing to say is it's not a competition. Um, uh, although we make it one. Uh, and we were talking last night about, uh, about Barrett Browning's um, sonnets from the Portuguese, and I think there are easily 10 in, in that sequence that rival the best poems in Shakespeare's sonnets. Um, ones for weddings. And, 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 and less problematic ones for yeah. weddings. Can, can I just spin that out to...
not can anybody do what Shakespeare did, but actually I'm, I'm fascinated by, and this is partly the, the passage of time thing, you make great play of the fact that Coleridge picks his, his favourite poems, and you look at them and go, what? Similarly, Ted Hughes comes up with ten totally different ones. To, so we all have our own engagement. There is such capacity in Shakespeare's spectrum that we can all find ourselves in it in different ways. And I'm, I'm just both thrilled and intrigued by that. But that seems to be exactly the same as the plays. You know, we, we all are, are drawn to different ones. Is it... There is no real critical agreement on what the finest of these are. If, we, if, we, if there were different people sitting here, everyone would have picked different favourite poems. 86 is quite an eccentric choice. Uh, yeah, but of course, like, like all Shakespeare fans, I'm convinced I'm right, and I think I could make a case for it. <laughs> but it's true, if you look at, you know, you know, there's this funny thing that Coleridge did, and he borrowed uh, uh, Wordsworth's edition uh, uh, um, uh, of the um, Quarto. Um, and he didn't give it back as usual and wrote all over it, which was like very Coleridge of him. Um, but, but he marked his, <laughs> he would never lend a book to Coleridge, but he marks up his favorite sonnets with a score out of five, I think, or four or five, you know. And the ones he chooses are bonkers. They're just like, he really has a thing for, 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 for um, smooth numbers, you know. It's, um, he'd be, he would have been a big Celine Dion fan. That's what you sort of feel reading this. He likes it smooth, you know. Um, there are some remarkable choices. So, but I, I don't, I mean, I think that's fair enough. I think Shakespeare's capacious enough, clearly, you know, um, not just for all of us to see ourselves in him, but, but there's a beautiful short story by Borges where he talks about, you know, sort of Shakespeare after he has finished his book and gives up writing and goes back to money lending. And, you know, and he talks about Shakespeare as being nothing, as having such a kind of infinite negative capability that he could be anybody because there was something at the core of him that was kind of nothing and could take any form. It's a remarkable story, you know, and, and in some ways the sonnet puts its lens a lie to that, but in other ways it, it confirms whatever Shakespeare was, it was completely tormented. Uh, that's a, the main thing that comes across with Shakespeare the man for me from that sonnet is absolute torment. I think the, um, what I'd add to that is that even that act of taking out the top ten or something suggests most of us are not reading this as a complete book. We're picking out. Uh, and that's a more manageable job. It's a more um, appealing, a more appealing way to do that. And I think, as we have saying before, it's a perfectly um, proper and, and rewarding and, and you know, good thing to do with them. Pick, yeah, pick your favourites. I think that's a good, always a good, good advice. <clears throat> We've got a question from the front. Could you, could you just wait? I, I feel poorly even asking you to wait, because not only is this the great Roy Strong, but he is also the sponsor of this event. But still, please wait for the microphone. No, no, can you hear me? Yes. <laughs> no, it's a rather ignorant question, because I've, I've written on that period, but I've always avoided Shakespeare, because you, once you get into it, you'll never get out of it. And why should you? Because it's, it's infinitely fascinating. But so much in the 1580s, 90s and beyond, uh, which is of a courtly nature and not for the lower classes, was circulated in manuscript. 
And I would really like to know whether manuscript, manuscript sequences of sonnets or individual sonnets exist from that period, 1580s, 90s, into the first decade or so, into the Jacobean period. Or were they, in fact, from the start, just for that person, clonk like that, and no seen by nobody else? Because you know that, I mean, things like uh, some of Sydney's things, certainly, I mean, the, the Arcadia existed and was circulating before it was printed in the 1590s. I just wondered because whether, whether, whether there are sonnet sequences uh, and odd sonnets which were so admired they were copied and passed around. Can you answer that? Uh, I, I think I can, yes. Good. Yes, I Hooray. can. Hooray, yes. I learned something. Shall I have a go? Um, so I think there are certainly lots and lots of examples of single sonnets in circulating in manuscript or small groups. Uh, in, uh, none, we don't have any that we can date in manuscript as being before the print publication, or, but we do, have an, we do have references to them circulating before, beforehand. Um, uh, I don't think we have any, uh, as far as I'm aware, any manuscript of a complete sequence. So I, myself, you know, as you will have heard from the uh, conversation more generally, I, I am suspicious of the sequence uh, as, a, as a form. I think these were collections rather than, uh, rather than sequences, and I think people did exactly what Peter was just uh, talking about now. They picked ones that, that worked for them or that they thought they wanted to, to transmit from everybody's sonnets, not just, not just from, from, from Shakespeare's. Uh, and certainly, but the, the big manuscript circulation, as you know, in this period is John Donne. So Donne's poems, yeah, later circulate, you know, the end of the 1590s into the 1600s. Donne's poems circulate for a long time before they are printed. We have time for one more question, which I will happily ask if you don't want to. No pressure, but um, is there anyone in the room or online who'd like to ask this? Okay, then can I ask um, both of you, and I guess it's, it's a sort of an adaptation of the question about has anyone done it as well ever since. Is there any sense in which Shakespeare just mastered sonnets so completely that he not just set the template, but also said, there's the bar, and other people just can't get near it? To what degree is he inspiring and to what degree is he simply intimidating everyone who came afterwards? That's a poet's question, I think, Don. <laughs> well, Peter, I don't know. Uh, it's interesting that it sort of dropped out of fashion, you know, sort of after Milton, you know, there's not a, a, a lot until the Romantics again, you know, and, and it only accommodates a certain kind of turn of mind and a certain concern. You know, and the Augustans didn't have much use for it, really. You know, it's just that, you know, you know, when poetry was taking a more kind of uh, didactic function, you know, in the culture, you know, the sonnets are just too short a form to be of much use to them. So it just, it just dropped out of use, really. Um, but, uh, no, I think uh, poets feed off each other. I think he, he's, he's been nothing but an inspiration. And certainly, you know, sort of if, you, if, you, if you read one poem and... and um, uh, in the sonnets and think he set the bar too high, all you need to do is turn the page, frankly. It's just like, <laughs> and you'll find something that hasn't. Um, you know, so, no, I think it's, uh, no, he, he remains a kind of pure source, 
you know, uh, you know, in terms of the sonnet um, and its possibilities. And the fact that, you know, he, you know, he didn't. He didn't set the bar by doing anything new with it. He set the bar by, by a pure mastery. So he's the benchmark of pure mastery, and that's what you're aiming for. He took the love sonnet and he adapted it, and he used love as a way of speaking about everything else. Um, what, I mean, what, sorry. Um, what I said was fascinating, the evidence. <laughs> but you missed it. <laughs> okay, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs>